friends, and welcome to Inside the Master's Studio, a behind-the-screens look into the art of GMing. Today, I am joined by Dustin. Hello. I was not prepared for the uh, the barrage of puns in that opening that you just said, so I had to control myself so I didn't giggle over your intro. <laughs> How long have you been playing RPGs and GMing RPGs? Oh. Oh gosh, um, playing, I want to say since I was like 10 or 12? Yeah, that sounds about right. I think about 10 years old, my best friend actually introduced me to D&D. But we didn't really play it so much as we did like look through, just read through the manuals a bunch of times and like create characters. We didn't really play campaigns back then but we did actually start to play campaigns i believe when we got into around halfway through high school is when we started to actually try and put actual adventures together so what was your first character oh gosh oh this is gonna be embarrassing my first character was a half dragon sorcerer and this was in high school Yes, yes, this was uh, my D&D character in high school. A silver dragon lineage, I should specify. I think it's pretty understood between role players that any characters created in high school get a free pass. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I felt a lot better about the uh, characters I created in college and beyond. Uh, so your friend was the first GM? Yeah, yeah, he was. He both GM'd and also had uh, his own character, because back then it was pretty much just us two who cared about D&D. I didn't have the bunch of people now that, like, wanted to play role-playing games. It was pretty much just me and my friend. So we, we, had, to make, we had to find ways of playing D&D with only two people. Is there anything you learned from him that you keep going today? Oh, let me think. I think the biggest thing was to not get too hook, to not get too too hung up on the details of a role playing system, especially with something like Dungeons and Dragons, where there's a lot of numbers and stuff that you might want to keep track of, and. I think for the most part, like, we early on, we sort of came to the understanding that, like, yeah, we weren't going to pay attention to spell components. We're, we weren't going to pay attention to the carry limit stuff, which to us, like, was all stuff that tended to bog down the pace of the game because you're constantly, like, doing math and going back to check the table, like, oh, can I even do this? Is like... Am I going to take an armor check penalty? And so early on, we sort of just intuitively figured out that there are some things that don't matter until they matter. And until they matter, just ignore them. (laughs) That's the mark of a true GM. Make up what you need to make up. Don't make up what you don't need to make up. And the players won't know the difference. Yeah. It's like uh, playing a musical instrument. People don't know you played a wrong note unless you show them that you played a wrong note. Yeah, the mo- the most important thing was keeping the flow of the game going. 
and not spending like 20 minutes looking up rules. Nowadays, do you GM out of necessity? Do you have other people willing to GM? Kind of both, honestly. Like, sometimes I GM out of necessity um, because uh, typically the the people I'm playing with, um, I have a fairly diverse (laughs) group of people I play with now. Um, some of whom are completely new to role-playing games or don't have a whole lot of experience. So typically I will be the GM in that scenario. Um, Sometimes I'll be the GM because I legitimately want to try out a new system and just see how it flows. Or maybe just because it's a system that I really like GMing. For example, 4th edition D&D is like that, where I actually really enjoy DMing that system. It's It's a fun thing to GM. And other times, like, I, there are other people will be the GM and I'll be like, oh, thank God, I can create a character and not worry so much about planning. <laughs> so it's, it's sort of a, a large mixture. But back in the day, like, usually I GM because no one else was going to. <laughs> uh, now, out of the games you've GM'd, D&D 3.5, 4th Edition, Pathfinder, Dungeon World... Warhammer 40k Death Watch, uh, will include Microscope. What would you say is your favorite 2GM? A 4th edition, definitely. I I both love GMing and also playing in that game. Um, it's just a really fun system for me. And I'm also, I'm also a really big fan of Dungeon World. Uh, it's... I'm still sort of getting used to how Dungeon World works, even though I've, as a player, I've played a Dungeon World campaign for quite a while, and as a GM, I've done it now for, I think, four or five sessions. But it's a system that I start to appreciate how it works um, the more often I play it. It's it's sort of weird going from D&D to Dungeon World, um, simply because of like how, uh, particularly in how combat goes, because like in, in, with a war game sort of system like D and D and with a lot of sort of the most generally popular role-playing systems, uh, everyone takes turns and everyone has discrete turns and moves that they do. And in Dungeon World, I think the the hardest part of adjusting that system for me was figuring out how to do combat. Because in Dungeon World, there aren't discrete turns. There aren't discrete rounds. Like, no one has... There's there's no chart where you can go, okay, well, you take your turn now, you take your turn now, and then, like, the enemies go. And the enemies don't really have turns at all. And the idea is that you are essentially setting up a scenario for your players and then asking them, how do you respond to this threat? And then they respond, and then the enemies might do something based on how they respond and how they roll. And it's almost more like cause and effect than it is turn-based combat. Uh, So that was... That was a weird thing to wrap my head around at first, given how many years I had already spent GMing a Dungeons & Dragons game. But it was also one of the things where once I finally got a handle on it, I was like, okay, that's actually super neat. 
So fourth fourth edition and uh, and Dungeon World would definitely be my picks, though. I do have to give a shout out to Hundred uh, Percent um, by Malachi Charlo because that's just so freeform in terms of what you can do with it. That if ever I'm at a loss for what system to use, I can always go well. Well, I'll use Percent and see how that works. As a GM, do you prefer something more freeform, or do you prefer being able to point out exactly what needs to be done? As a GM, it doesn't really make a difference for me. Like, I like both styles of play. Um, and sometimes it just depends what kind of mood I'm in, honestly. Because uh, sometimes, like, I'm f- I-, I feel like something where I can just kind of sit down with not a whole lot of prep and have my players bounce things off of me and sort of improvise from there, which Dungeon World is very good at. Uh, and other times, I like having the more structured approach that 4th edition brings. And so typically the system I choose will be based on a combination of what other games I'm already involved in. Like if I have a lot of one type, I'll kind of like tend to course correct to another one. So I have a balance. And also it's influenced by what I think the group of players will enjoy. Um, for example, I'm I'm doing one right now in in real life with a group of friends who has been playing D and D for a while. Like that's their main system, and so I went with Pathfinder uh, because a that's what they're used to, and b because like all three of them are very much like heavy video gamers, and all three of them like war games like the total war series and so they already have that sort of war game and number crunching mentality about how they play rpgs and so it was just a good pathfinder was just a very nice fit for them whereas this other game i'm i'm gming the players are either new or i've known them from my days of playing 100 percent which was a very freeform system. And so Dungeon World was, even though it's a little crunchier than 100% is, it's still very much more about a freeform sort of narrative. So it fit well for that particular group a lot better than D&D would. And also the medium you're using to actually run the game can be pretty influential too. Uh, because with a system like 4th edition, as much as I love it, to really play that system well requires you to have a grid and to have miniatures and to have a constant understanding of where exactly in space everything is. Because all of the powers that you're going to be using in that game have a spatial element to them, which is a lot easier to do in real life than it is in over a digital medium. Right, I think the common term for Dungeons and Dragons 4th edition would be one part role playing, one part tactics. Yeah, yeah, it's that's very accurate. Um it, it plays very much like Final Fantasy Tactics but with Dungeon World with the uh, Dungeon and Dragons pasted on over it. Whereas something like 100% or Dungeon World, that's very easy to do over the internet because like you don't really need 
anything for that aside from maybe a a Google document to keep uh, NPC names and stuff fresh in your minds because there's because the spatial elements of that are very much in your mind's eye and they don't need to be concrete they're a lot more malleable so speaking of npcs uh personally that's one of the points where i struggle the most trying to come up with npc names that aren't ridiculous or uh too on the nose like ah yes this is steve blacksmith he's the town blacksmith (laughs) <laughs> what uh, do you yeah. use for coming up with NPC names? Oh, God. Um, yeah, that, unfortunately, I don't think I'm going to be much help to you because that's also an area I struggle with. Uh, sometimes I'll use online name generators, and that's that's actually typically what I'll do with NPCs I know are going to show up in the narrative, is I'll go to a name generator and like look at some options and go, that one seems neat, and I'll use that. Uh, but if a new NPC has just been created on the spot, that's the point where I just have to pause for a second and go, oh God, um, I'm not, what, what do I name this man? I'll go with George. Yes, this man's name is George. This will work. Uh, and I've always been really bad at coming up with names on the spot. And I, I have heard many times this great idea that other smarter GMs have had where they just come up with a list of names for NPCs that they can draw from whenever a new NPC is introduced. They can just have this pool of names that they pick from. And I, and I always think, gee, that's a great idea. And then I just never set it up beforehand because I'm a really terrible planner. (laughs) So part of it is just self-inflicted. How much prep do you generally do for a session, say, 4th edition? How do you build an encounter? Oh, man. 4th um, edition takes a lot more prep for me uh, simply because like, I'm, I'm having to create encounters and stat up and get all the stat blocks organized and come up with a map, which, by the way, if there's one thing I'm worse at than coming up with NPC names is creating a map. I am so god-awful about that. Like, I think, oh, I should make a wizard tower. And then when it comes to thinking, like, what should I put in the wizard tower to make it seem like a place that someone actually lives in? I just, my brain just flees. It's like, uh, you can, uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go on vacation. Good luck. It's like, no brain, come back. (laughs) But yeah, with a war game like D&D or Pathfinder, or Warhammer, it takes a lot more prep, simply because of the encounter planning. In terms of planning things around, like, what are players going to do, I typically think, okay, what is probably the most reasonable option to take here, and sort of plan around that. But also, I try and design things so if weird things happen... I've given myself enough space to plan around that, which can be difficult sometimes. Like, because, like, I I like including puzzles in my games, which, man, if there is one thing in a role-playing game that will blow up in your face 100% of the time, it is a puzzle. Because, like, man, you... if. If you think the solution is totally obvious, even if it is 
like actually the most obvious solution in the universe and you are signposting the hell out of it, there is still no guarantee that they will pick up on those signpostings. So after the first two or three times my own cleverness backfired on me, I started I still I didn't give up on puzzles, but I started designing the puzzles in such a way that the two or three most obvious and efficient answers weren't the only things they could do to solve the puzzle. And also I'm always make sure to think like, okay, if they try to brute force it, can they do it? Like I used to shy away from allowing my players to brute force a puzzle, but eventually I decided that like, it's kind of not fun if your players aren't getting the hints you're putting down and so sometimes them being able to brute force it is the lesser of two evils. And like the way to handle that is to allow them to brute force the puzzle, but also give them serious consequences for doing so. Like where, where they will continue on with what they need to do and they will get past that challenge, but stuff will go bad for them. Have you ever tried crowdsourcing a puzzle before giving it to your players? Uh, I have not, but that sounds like a good idea. <laughs> I mean, I personally love puzzles and love making them, but I agree. There's a certain frustration where you know exactly what needs to be done and you're just watching other people struggle, but it's so obvious. Yeah, it's like, how how could you not get this? Yeah, so you usually like... Um, like oftentimes, like at, once the session is done, I'll ask my players hey, why didn't you see this? Or uh, why'd you go with this particular thing? And that will that will help me plan puzzles in the future. And, and also understand how to communicate the puzzle. Part of it is just remembering to emphasize the right things. And also not put red herrings in there when you don't need them. Ah, uh, good old plain view high school. Exactly. One of the most important things about environment design when you're creating an environmental puzzle is to make sure that you don't make the environment too interesting because otherwise they'll probably focus in on some just background thing that you never meant to be an important thing to begin with. So <laughs> just, just keeping it simple is often a good approach. Now, do you remember what one of these first puzzles that backfired on you was? Uh, yeah, there was one puzzle where it was actually for my Roll for Your Lives podcast, which I I still haven't released the recordings of these ones. I'm trying to find a nice, a good place to put them because by the time I was like, okay, it's time to edit these, um, I was already work recording the underground and it would feel weird to split up the underground with just a random other session. Um, but I'll release them eventually. But we were playing a system called... Uh, Head, Hand, Heart, Hobgoblin, which was also by Malachi Charlo. I uh, was having them go through an inverted wizard tower. It was like a wizard tower that started... The ground floor was, like, just be like at the bottom of a lake and extended far even farther down. Well, I should say the bottom was, like, in the, in the middle of a lake and then extended farther down. But, like, anyway. So... I had this idea where they would get to the ground floor of 
the wizard tower and there was and like the only stuff in front of them were three doors that were locked and they couldn't open and there was like this android um who was depowered but had four orb slots in his chest and up above there was a shant like there was like this um chandelier that also had four orbs with like swirling energies representing earth wind water and fire and the idea was that they were supposed to take like channel some energy out of that chandelier those chandelier orbs and put it into the android but it clearly the signposting clearly wasn't obvious and so they had no idea what to do but thankfully there was also thankfully like I had not planned this, but I had put a dead body in there for flavor as like a, like, oh, someone who wasn't supposed to be here had tried to break into the tower and something had killed him, probably the android. And it was just supposed to be like this bit of environmental flavor warning them that, hey, the android is dangerous if you don't do this right. But what they ended up doing was like summoning the spirit of this dead thief and he basically explained how you were supposed to power up the android and then like said oh yeah but i didn't have the right credentials or something so the and so the android treated me as an intruder and killed me so i was able to i was able to give them a way out of the puzzle in a way that i had not planned for and I'm I'm basically just glad that I had that out, <laughs> because otherwise it probably would have taken forever. It's always good to have a ghost with foresight. Yeah. It's like, ah, I can point you to the exact wrong thing to do so that you can get through this. Yeah. I was worried your party was going to get stuck trying to fifth element the chandelier. <laughs> yeah, it's like, we just have to stick love up there. Was Fifth Element secretly a Captain Planet story? Uh, no, but it is secretly a Die Hard movie. Nowadays, if you were going to teach a new GM how to build a puzzle, what would your first step be? I think my first step would be to, uh, to like, first of all, to ask them, do you really need this puzzle? I used to like putting puzzles in things just because, like, oh, I was I was treating it like a video game, and that's what video game things do. And these di- these days, I tend to shy away from puzzles, not just because they can be hard for characters to, to for players to grasp, but also because sometimes they feel out of place, and like I could just do something both easier that also makes more sense for the particular area. Uh, so typically. Uh, the first question I'd ask is like, okay, how does this puzzle make sense for the world? And is there anything else you could replace this with that would accomplish the same goals without running the risk of stumping your players and making the experience frustrating? So like, that's the first question is, do you really need that puzzle? With that, what would you have done differently now about that chandelier? I either would have just left it out entirely or 
I would have made it a much more obvious thing of like, oh yeah, this android is depowered and you need to find a way to reactivate it again. So instead of making a kind of like obscure and abstract sort of thing, make the goal very obvious from the way the environment is. So it feels less like a puzzle and more like a narrative obstacle, like a roadblock. It's like, oh, we got here and we're supposed to talk to this android now, but oh, the android's depowered. We need to find a way to power it up again. Which is not the sort of thing that my chandelier puzzle immediately signposted. Now, in sort of the same vein, traps are basically puzzles. Do you have any particular instances where you devised a really good trap that just made the entire campaign go sideways or ground play to a halt? Traps are still something I'm really working on. I feel like they work better in stuff like Dungeon World than they do in 4th Edition, uh, in Dungeons & Dragons, because, like, even though D&D is very much known for its traps, like, that's one of the things you think of when you think of D&D, traps, to me, have always felt very... It's hard to fool people with traps in D&D, because either you have a dude who has a really good perception... Um, and so they're always, like, seeing the traps anyway. Or you don't have anyone, and it just feels punitive. And as a corollary to that, if you start using traps frequently, then your players will start, like, just searching for traps in every single fucking room they come across. And if, like, you go in the opposite direction, then again, when you put a trap in, it's like, oh god, how could we have even known to look? You know? So, it's... Traps in D&D can be very hard to use well. I try to make my use of traps very, very logical. I won't just put them in a random hallway. I will always put traps in areas where, in hindsight, it's like, oh yeah, of course this would have been trapped. Like, yeah, duh. That way, when my players don't check for them, then they don't think, oh, that was bullshit. But like, oh yeah, like it was, it was like the, the door to the main big bad's bedroom. Of course it would have had a trap on it. What were we thinking? Yeah, I've had the experience myself where I thought I'd be a little clever and then it Took about an hour for them to move 15 feet. Yeah. Yeah. And like, I, yeah, I mean, I like the idea of traps, but also as a GM, you're sort of like constantly trying to walk that fine line between making the dungeon tense and making it tedious. Um, because if you just start throwing traps all over the place, then yeah, of course your players are going to just start using perception checks on everything in the universe because you've trained them to. Um, so I use traps very sparingly and only when it's uh, like a very logical place for them to be. We've talked to some about pitfalls that GMs have to be on the lookout for. Do you personally feel that a GM 
should be a player first. Um, hmm. That's kind of how I've approached GMing, but I don't necessarily think that's the right way, mostly because I don't think there really is a right way to approach it. Um, I should always, like, I think the better way to phrase it is that a GM should always be mindful that their goal is to tell a story and to tell a story through the player characters. And so whether or not you are a very friendly GM like I am, or you're a very adversarial GM, or you're somewhere in between, regardless of how harsh you are, the things you do to your players and do with your players should always be about them. So I I guess in a way, like, you could say that a GM should be a player first in the sense of, like, you should always ask yourself, if I were in their shoes, would I think this was a cool narrative moment? Or would I think this was just some DM fiat bullshit? And if I was a player, would I think this was an interesting complication? Or would I think the GM's just trying to screw me? So I think as a GM, it's a good idea to always look at what you're doing from the perspective of like imagining you are a player in this scenario. Have you ever had to deal with an adversarial GM or an antagonistic beyond the normal scope GM? Thankfully, I've never had to deal with that. Um, I've heard horror stories. And in fact, like my my best friend has been in a couple of campaigns where their GM was kind of mean for no reason. Uh, I've had a couple GMs that were pretty harsh, but it was always in a way that made narrative sense. And I never felt like, oh, the GM is just being mean because he wants us to fail. And more like, no, this GM is being mean because he wants to tell that kind of story. Which, like, I'm not always up for that kind of story. My GMing style, like, I've I've tried to be that kind of GM before, where I have the story that's more, um, how should I put it? It builds character. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's it sort of builds heroes up, only to break them down later. Only to build them up again, and then kick them down again. But I've always been really bad at that. So I think after a while, I just gave up and... Like, just came to terms with the fact that I'm much more of a, like, fun, action-adventure, almost sort of thrill-ride GM. I'm the type of GM that lets their players get away with some goofy stuff sometimes, just because I think, like, yeah, sure, that'll be fun. Um, And I don't have the heart to tell them no, just because I think it's such a good idea. That's just how I am personally. And it's also how I tend to like my games. I tend to like my games to be more lighthearted experiences, though I have been in games that are harsher, that are darker, that are more depressing in tone, and they've been run well, generally, and I can enjoy those, it's just not typically what I go for. In terms of letting things go for the story's benefit, do you have 
a line in which you won't cross when it comes to fudging rules? Uh, hmm. I'm trying to think. If a player is trying to do something that just does not fit the tone of the game, like, in the slightest, then I'll typically ban that action, even if it's technically feasible. I'll also say flat-out no's to things that are sort of clearly ridiculous for the power level of the campaign. Maybe it's because, like, the players I typically play with are very polite and they don't try to cheat. (laughs) I've never had to worry really about policing them and how they handle the rules. Like, I've never had a player try to exploit the rules. So I've never had to worry about that. So typically when I'm fudging things, it's for storyline purposes. And what about your own dice? I will I will sometimes fudge dice to help players out. I've I don't usually have to do that. And sometimes if I want a particular story beat to happen and the dice aren't just aren't cooperating with me, I'll just say, "Oh yeah, he hit you for max damage even though he totally didn't." And typically I won't do that in battles or anything or any sort of skill challenges or whatever where there is a real possibility that a character could die. In that sort of life or death scenario for the player, I will not fudge stuff against them. I'll only fudge stuff against them when it will make more interesting complications that they can still get out of, but will cause greater tension. Do you ever save characters that should have died according to the dice? Oh, I've I've done that before, yes. I almost always save that sort of fudging for if, like, they just had a string of bad luck. I'll only ever say, like, well, sorry, dice say your character just died if they've done something, like, legitimately dangerous and, like, they knew the risks. But sometimes, like, the dice just are mean to you. And at that point, I'm like, well, this is sort of ridiculous. And then I'll, I'll, I'll lay off of that character. But, you know, if you got yourself into a dangerous scenario and you could die, I'm not going to fudge your dice to save you. If you're doing an ongoing campaign and a character did die, do you prefer to have the person just instantly jump right back in with the same level they were at? Or do you make them start at level one? Oh, I, I do not make them start at level one. Never. I, I'm sure there's a way you could do it that's satisfying for everyone involved, but I can't imagine what that would be. Because, I mean, one of the one of the most fun things about tabletop games is that progression of complexity when you level up. Um, like, it's, it's what you look forward to uh, with your character sheet. And to... Uh, make someone go all the way back to the starting point when everybody else gets to play around with their fancy stuff just seems a bit too punitive. The punishment from death has already come from the character death. Like, if you're doing your storytelling job right, all the players and the GM, in fact, will feel the loss of that character, and that will be punishment enough for that character's death. So to add on to that, like, oh, sorry, you have to start all the way back at level one and you're going to take away all your toys. Like that to me is just a step too far. I'm sure there's been a GM somewhere that, that did that well, but I personally have no idea how I would do that. 
how do you maintain the balance between wanting the players to be challenged, but also not wanting to just straight up kill their characters? Like, how do you basically make them feel like they're in danger, but still competent? That's that's something I always struggled with with D&D. There are so many things, there's so many random variables in a D&D encounter that can swing one way or the other to either make them feel like overly competent and steamrolling everything, or just completely incompetent and barely holding it together. And so I always struggled with coming up with a nice medium in D&D, and that's like the, as much as I love D&D and systems like it, that's one of the like main issues I have with it is in counterbalance and just hitting that sweet spot is so hard to pull off. Whereas with something like Dungeon World, it's flexible enough that the severity of the complications and punishments that arise from bad rolls are completely up to me. So if they're currently having a real hard time, I can make the punishments less severe, so that way it still feels like they have an uphill battle, but, you know, I'm I'm kind of going easy on them so they can actually get up that hill and aren't just stranded, stranded at the bottom forever. Whereas, like, if they're doing really well and, whoops, suddenly rolled a six, I can say, all right, now something real bad's about to happen because <laughs> of what you just did. And like hit them hard and then and make them like face something that they weren't prepared for or that's really gonna hurt them if they don't deal with it and so it's a lot easier for me to keep that like sweet spot of tension with something like dungeon world than has ever been with D. i'm sure every gm has experienced the want to tell a specific story but still giving the players choice. Have you ever struggled with railroading? Oh god, yeah. That's like every campaign I've ever done. Just because of the way I construct stories is very much like I have an outline of like what I know I want to have happen in the story. And so my, my early games were very railroady. Because again, like I was treating them like video games. It's like, oh, you're going to go into this room and this will happen. And I was scripting the hell out of them. I still have probably more scripting than a perhaps ideal GM. I constantly like am sort of seeing other better GMs and going like, man, they, they incorporate their characters' personal stories way better than I am. I almost feel like that's just my style now as a GM is to have a slightly more linear and structured narrative. Um, and so now now that I've sort of embraced that, what I'm trying to basically do now is find a way to mesh that well with the improvisational nature of role-playing. I, ha- I still have my outline, the sort of story beats I want to hit, but I don't plan everything from point A to point B. I know what point A and point D, and point Q are. But everything in between, like, I might have, say, oh, they might do this, or, like, I'll have, you know, some options they could pursue, like, already planned out. But sort of between that, it's more about 
letting them sort of go off and on their own and then improvising ways to sort of funnel them back to the main points I want them to get to. It's very much the sort of diamond-shaped narrative design that you see a lot of modern story-based video games doing, like, say, The Witcher or the Telltale games, where it'll branch out and then go back, and then it'll branch out again and then go back. So I've tried to structure my games a lot more like that now. Do you think railroading is even a bad thing? No, absolutely not. I think it can certainly be used for evil, but there's nothing inherently wrong with railroading as long as you are allowing your characters to be who they are. Sometimes that just means if you want to run a more railroaded campaign, you need to be careful about what type of characters you allow your players to make. You need to just be upfront with them and say, hey, this is what the campaign is, this is what the basic story is, this is what the tone is, and these are the type of characters that will mesh well with this setting, and these are the type of character personalities that will be detrimental. And you really just have to communicate, like, you have to communicate with your players more so they know what to expect. Um, so that way, you know, when they're trying to properly roleplay, uh, they aren't feeling like they're going against the flow of what you're trying to do and being a hassle to you just because they're trying to play their character properly. Because that makes both the GM and the player frustrated. Because the GM wants to tell their story, and the player wants to play their character honestly. But if that sort of communication up front hasn't been done, then those two things might just conflict. So yeah, I mean, railroading can absolutely be a good thing. But you need to communicate what your desires are for the game. Now, was realizing that your earlier narrative structure tended to be on rails... Was that something you realized yourself, or was that brought to your attention? Uh, it was definitely something I realized myself, simply because I did have the issue where I had an idea in my mind of exactly how things would go, and then even though my players weren't deliberately going out of their way to not do things, um, and even though they weren't, um, they were still doing the things I wanted them to do, just not in like the ways I expected them to, and that was causing problems for me. Like, at that point, I realized, like, oh, yeah, I am I am setting these things in stone too much, and I need to give my narrative some breathing room for my players to be their characters and find more organic ways of leading them from one plot point to the next. So it was definitely something I clued into just because I was seeing those problems crop up. So a new GM comes up to you and is asking for advice on feeling frustrated that players don't seem to be reacting the way he'd like them to, and he's got this grand story planned out. So what would your advice to him be? It'd probably be like, do you think the players are even interested in the story you want to tell? Because the I know from experience that the problem I had is that my early stuff was a story that wasn't necessarily made for players, but was made for me. Like, I was trying to be the fancy fantasy novel writer, and I wasn't taking into account that I'm not the only one who's experiencing this. The first step is making sure 
your players are all on board with the type of story you want to tell, if they're interested in your narrative. Um, and if they aren't, as mean as it might be to say, like, maybe you need to ditch that narrative and come up with something different that they are interested in. Like, maybe they don't want to do a high fantasy swords and sorcery style thing. Maybe they just want to do, like, an Ocean's Eleven style heist, except they're all fantasy characters like rogues and rangers. I mean, that's the first step, is finding out if your players are even on board with this type of story you want to tell. Uh, the second thing is, if your players are interested in the story, but they're still sort of, like, drifting out, or they're kind of fighting against it, communicating with them specifically, being like, hey, what here isn't working for you? Maybe the problem sometimes is a lack of variety, because it can be nice to have a breather from the main storyline from time to time. Maybe do a session where all they do is hang around in town and get up to goofy stuff. Like, they have shenanigans. Maybe someone burns a, ca a barn down or something when they were drunk. Who knows? But having those moments where it isn't just all about the main narrative can be helpful for breaking up the pace and giving them a little spice in their life. <laughs> the uh, fantasy equivalent of... Goku and Piccolo learning how to drive. Yeah, basically. Like, the moment I remember, and it wasn't even an entire session, but I think it really helped keep them entertained and interested in what was going on and keep them, like, listening to me, is that uh, I was doing, um, I was running a Pathfinder Adventure Path, uh, the Jade Regent one, and I think it was the second book we were in. They had just finished this one quest where they had to retrieve some stuff from a funeral boat. Um, a guy was a, a, a guy who was still alive was trapped on a funeral boat about to be burned alive, and they saved him through a way I wasn't expecting. With a combination of, like, the ant hall and water walk spell, just had their fighter just drag the boat to shore. <laughs> but after that, they sold the boat and all its contents, made a ton of money, and then for, like, maybe, like, 15, 20 minutes... They spent the time using that money to buy a bunch of ducks and create a duck fighting league, which was like Pokemon, but only with ducks. And we spent, yeah, we spent like 15 minutes hashing that out and like sort of just letting them do that. And they all really enjoyed it. And I think it's like one of the things they remembered most fondly about that particular campaign was when they got to set up a duck fighting league. I wish you could see the look on my face right now. <laughs> but it's like, now that I think about it, it may have been a sort of morally questionable move for these people. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it was, it was really fun. It didn't take over the narrative. Like, it was just this short detour where they were like, yeah, we just finished a thing that we were supposed to do. Let's relax by buying a bunch of ducks. And so I think that kept them really entertained and into the narrative just because they had that moment to relax and do something silly before getting into the more serious narrative proper. Do you have a hands-down favorite moment where your player surprised you as a GM or just did something epic that you weren't expecting from them? Oh, man. Hmm. 
I mean, de- definitely the funniest moment was actually, I was alluding to it already, but like, in the adventure path proper, what they were supposed to do to rescue this man from, because the funeral ship was basically being shot at with fire arrows. And so, like, the idea was that the funeral ship was burning down, as funeral ships do, um, and they had to get the guy out alive, and they didn't, and even though there was a bunch of treasure in the boat, they couldn't just, like, spend the entire day, like, dragging it to shore, because, again, the boat was going to burn down and sink. Uh, So it was supposed to be this very tense, time-limited thing. But because we had a wizard in the party, and I feel like a lot of... Just really goofy things that take a particular quest completely off the rails can be traced back to a wizard at some point. Um, because that's what they do. If you're ever in a bind, a wizard did it. Yeah, he, he not only figured out a way to protect the ship from the arrows so the ship was no longer flammable, but he realized that, oh yeah... He had both the Ant Hall spell, which for those of you not familiar with D&D, Ant Hall basically uh, gives you the proportional carrying strength of an ant. Um, And he also had the spell that lets you walk on water. So he realized if he casted both of those spells on the fighter, who has a really high strength score, and the fighter could tie a rope to the ship, the fighter could walk on the water... Because both Ant Hall and Water Walking have duration of like an hour or two. He could just like drag the ship back to shore. Just all along the water. And no one could stop them. (laughs) And at that point I was like, okay, well, this was not how this was supposed to end at all. Uh, So then I had to figure out, okay, now they're going to sell the ship. Because, you know, adventurers love money. So how much money did they get? And also, how am I going to deal with them suddenly having a ridiculous amount of money? And also, how am I going to deal with them trying to sell a funeral boat? Because that's not something that happens every day. (laughs) Like, how how are the merchants going to react to that when they try to sell an entire boat? And just like this whole string of things that even though it just threw me completely off balance and made me rethink a whole lot of stuff for that session was maybe one of the funniest things someone has ever done to me. Now, what about from the other perspective? You were a player, and you felt like you took the GM for a loop. Oh. I don't think I've ever really taken a GM for the GM for a loop. I'm actually usually a pretty... Oh, wait, no, I I take that back. Okay, so there was one thing I did where, like, usually I'm a pretty amenable player, pretty easily able to clue in to what the GM wants to do and, like, sort of go along with that. But there was this one game I was playing in. um, It was a fourth edition game. I was playing a cleric, like, a a sort of goody-two-shoes cleric uh, who, like, wanted to do the right thing and wanted to believe in people kind of to the point of naivete and this gm had actually set up a character beforehand who was a uh, succubus working for the big bad evil guy like our first experience with her was having her try to ambush and kill us while also revealing to us that you know before she revealed her disguise 
uh, had fed our horses to us. Which, man, that that's a story for something a GM did that really threw me for a loop. Somewhat Godfather inspired? <laughs> yeah. But so, like, eventually, though, like, she became a more complex villain. By the time, like, our characters actually went into hell, she had become a sort of pseudo-good guy, at the very least was trying to help us. So my character had actually advocated for keeping her along with the group for both of us to help her out and, like, sort of doing diplomacy with her and saying, like, I know, like, in your heart you want to do the right thing. And the GM had initially just not planned on her being a major NPC or, like, having much to do with us after that particular trip into hell. I think he was going to, like either have her just never come back again or just kill her off. And I managed to convince the GM to keep her around. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, like, the group kind of broke up soon after that. Life stuff happened and we all went our separate way. But, like, yeah, I, I had actually convinced the GM to make her a more important NPC for the group, which is probably, like, I guess it didn't really throw him for a loop necessarily, but... It was something where the way I played my character had a noticeable effect on the GM's plans. I can't think of any crazy things I've done, though, because I've, I'm typically not the player who does crazy things. I'm very much the straight man in most scenarios. Do you think that being a GM has affected how you play as a player? Definitely, yeah. I think I'm more likely to push boundaries a little bit because back before I was a GM consistently I would be very much like just going along with that with whatever the GM wanted but I sort of eventually realized that that's not really interesting for me it's not really interesting for my other players and it's not really that interesting for the GM either if I'm just following in lockstep with whatever their plans are and so with my GMing experience I started to figure out like okay I now have a general idea of how far I can have my character push a particular storyline or adventure into a certain direction without like derailing something or forcing the GM down a path they weren't at all prepared for. So sort of being that character that will make a GM do improv, but not to the extent where I'm... Just twisting the screws. Yeah, where I'm like twisting their arm and like sabotaging their plans. More like I'm kind of forcing them to flesh out their plans. The double secret GM. Yes, basically. Yeah. Um, for example, uh, in this Dungeon World game that I'm playing with um, my friend Melissa, she's the GM. Uh, she's doing a Dungeon World thing. That's basically like fantasy Stargate. I'm playing a character who sort of like stepped through an unstable Stargate because like it suddenly appeared like in his uh, land, in his tribal land. And he was like, well, this is weird. I should go through here to make sure this doesn't represent a threat to us. And he went through and soon after the gate closed behind him and I was like, well, this is bad. Currently, all he really wants to do is find a way to get back home. He doesn't really care about adventuring in unknown lands. He's just like, man, I just want to get back to my home. 
And so, like, that's clearly at odds with what a campaign is supposed to be about. So I'm sort of pushing against it in that way. But also, I'm playing along enough so that I'm not just deliberately going like, no, I don't want to do this. No, I don't want to do this. I'm basically, like, forcing the GM, I'm forcing Melissa to come up with, basically come up with a, a breadcrumb trail for my character to follow that also happens to force him to go adventuring, even though he really doesn't want to. So it's not, no, I don't want to do this. It's, no, give me a reason to do this. Exactly, exactly. So, like, basically going like, okay, I'm a reluctant adventurer. I really don't want to be doing this, but also, I kind of have to. <laughs> so, yeah, it's 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 been an interesting experience. If you had to pick one setting, you only get one setting for the rest of your life. Would you prefer fantasy? Oh, man. Hmm, that one's really hard. I'd probably prefer fantasy simply because even though I like sci-fi more, there's just so much more stuff out there for fantasy settings than there are for sci-fi. Like, there is a huge variety of stuff out there for fantasy role-playing. Um, and even and even though the amount of stuff for, um, for sci-fi is getting a lot bigger and there's a lot more variety coming out, I just find that it's a lot easier to find new systems to play and to find players to play those systems with if you're doing a fantasy setting. Considering that fantasy has basically been the go-to setting since you know 70s yeah that's part of the reason why (laughs) how do you keep it feeling fresh rather than try to come up with like truly weird and bizarre worlds or narratives what i've been doing to keep things fresh actually is to make the races involved different i'm starting to shy away from humans and elves and dwarves being the most common things. Um, And I actively encourage my players to play not necessarily like really out there races, but more unusual and uncommon ones. So, And I do this as a player as well. So I like playing Minotaurs, or I go for Genasi, or for Dryads. I give those sort of more uncommon races prominent roles in the story. So even if it still isn't like a really unique fantasy story or fantasy setting, it feels different because I'm focusing on different people. And I'm focusing on a different sort of um, ecology. So even something as simple as that, and it's actually like if I was in charge of the next edition of Dungeons & Dragons... I wouldn't put humans in the core book. I wouldn't put elves in the core book. I wouldn't put dwarves in the core book. I'd put, I would put minotaurs in the core book. I'd put dryads in the core book. I'd put kobolds in the core book. So things like that. So that it feels very different, even though it's really not. I, I gotta admit, that does sound pretty entertaining. I really want that now. <laughs> I know, right? Um, unfortunately, it, it's it's... I don't think it's ever going to happen with D&D because there's, there'd probably be too much complaining about it. So so I try and make up for it by encouraging those sorts of racial dynamics in my 
campaigns. I'm guilty of it myself. Welcome to a fantasy world. You can be whatever you want to be. What would you like to be? A human. Yeah. I'm already a human 24-7. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, and, that, and that's one of the benefits that like something like Dungeon World has where... Or one of a, or a, or really any system where there aren't really stats, or at the very least there aren't stats tied to races. So that way you aren't looking at your class and going like, well, human is strictly the best for this, so I should probably go human. Because like in D&D, I would absolutely love to play a Minotaur wizard, but I'd be awful at actually being a wizard because none of the stats would be correct. Um, so I feel like that is that is a huge hindrance in those sorts of games to like really having a, a diverse set of races represented. It sort of makes me want to, whenever I'm running a D&D game, just say like everything about the race abilities stay the same, except you can pick any two like stats to add an increase to. Would you go as far as completely house rolling? Or house ruling stats. I I have been known to house rule a lot of things. Like I, I even uh, in in every single D and D game I've ever run, I have given out bonus feats for things that are technically necessary but are really boring. Back in fourth edition, where you basically had to have a weapon feat that gave you plus one to attack rolls with whatever weapon you were going to be using all the time. Like, I just gave that to people for free. So they didn't have to spend a feat on that. It's like, you just get that. And often I'll give them another bonus feat that they can use for something that purely adds flavor to their character. So so they're encouraged to try out one of the feats that you normally would never take. Like a fighting style feat, or... Like, like when you're looking through the feats in like a Pathfinder directory or something and you find something that's so specific and you're like, God, who the hell would ever pick this in a normal game? Like, this is so specific to, and does so little. Why would you ever bother? So I try to give out feats and encourage people to spend that bonus feat on stuff like that, where it's like very specific and like technically speaking, a bad feat, but it's a very interesting feat. <laughs> How do you feel about systems with trap feats? I think it I think those are garbage. <sighs> Why would you be adversarial to new players like that? That's always been my idea. It's like trap feats are just they seem to me to be antithetical to what role playing games should be. The uh nerd equivalent of hazing? Yeah, basically, because all they really do is just make it harder for a new player to create a competent character. Especially if they're a feat that like legitimately looks pretty cool and helpful because you don't know the math behind the system as well as the older players do. So that to me just feels like, man, why would you even have those? I feel like in some cases, at least in modern systems, I don't think anyone's creating feats that are deliberately trap feats. I think that often happens because... You want to create a ton of feats, but then, like, the problem is if you have a ton of feats, some of them are just not going to be useful compared to others. I have my issues with 5th edition, but one thing I actually really, really like about 5th edition is how it does feats. Because, like, I look through the list, I'm like, 
I can imagine myself taking any of these with the right character build, just because they all have such dramatic changes and they do such important things. It's like, oh yeah, all of these are good. They're not all necessarily good for my character, but I can see a situation where I would want to take this. Whereas like there are a lot of feats in 4th edition and 3.5 and Pathfinder where I'd be like, why would I ever go for this? Do you think a campaign should start off with, this is session zero, this is just for character creation? Or do you think, you know, just everybody go off on your own, create the character you want, and bring it to the table? So with my games, since I tend to be a more railroady GM, um, and the games tend to be a, more about the overarching story than it is necessarily about the player's individual, the character's individual stories. Um, it's less of an issue for people to sort of create their characters kind of in a vacuum and then connect them later on. Y- usually when people are creating characters for my campaigns, the communication doesn't go beyond like, okay, what roles do we need filled? Like, who's playing what already? Like, who who's called dib, dibs on what? And what do we still need to do? Whereas with other games, like, if, if I did run a more... If I did run a campaign that was a lot more focused on the characters and their personal stories, then I would absolutely have something like Concession Zero, where we would all collaboratively create characters and go like, okay, from the jump, how do we connect these characters together? And how does that inform what skills these characters are going to have and what stats these characters are going to have and what race these characters are going to be and what gender they are. I don't usually do session zeros simply because I don't typically need session zeros. They absolutely have their place, but yeah, I just don't tend to need them because of how I structure my narratives. We are going to start wrapping up, but before we do, going to subject you to the shamelessly stolen Bernard Pivo questionnaire. Oh boy. Uh, modified slightly, because you're not a GM unless you change things to your own whims. <laughs> exactly. So, what is your favorite word? <sighs> Particularly. It's not a, it's not a fancy word. It's not one that jumps out there, but I use that word a whole lot. (laughs) It's got a good rhythm to it. I also just like consonants that have very sharp endings, too, I think. And that one has a lot of sharp endings on consonants. Uh, What is your least favorite word? (sighs) Man. I don't think I have a least favorite one. (laughs) I like like all words. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you want me to just go through a list of least liked words? Yeah, sure, go for it. I'll... Okay, uh, moist. See, I like that. I actually like the sound of moist. Horse. No, I can't say that because I, I have I own some horses. Oh. So. Well, I mean, you don't have to tell them. <laughs> what turns you on creatively, spiritually, or emotionally? Usually when I'm coming up with narratives, it's because of a song I heard. Like, in almost every single circumstance I can think of where I have come up with a story, I was listening to 
either one or two particular songs and just came up with a narrative based on how that song sounded or what the lyrics in that in that in those songs were and like obviously the media like the the video games and the uh and the books i've consumed sort of play into that sort of what i eventually landed on with the underground which is my current role for your lives campaign that kind of spawned off the idea of Metro 2033 and Stalker Shadow of Chernobyl, but with Dungeon and Dragons. Like, if, if the D&D world had an apocalypse and, and it became tw- Metro 2033, like, how would that look? So I guess it's kind of a mixture. Like, the high concept comes from me sort of, like, going through my ins- my inspirations from video games and books and movies and TV series and, like, sort of mashing that together. But then the narrative they, that I come up with that sort of makes a skeleton out of that high concept comes from music. Because from music, I get the tone I want. And once I get the tone I want, I can figure out what story events I want to have happen that set that tone. Do you still remember the specific tracks to the specific storylines? Uh, yeah, actually. Um, again, for the underground... The song, when I heard it, I was like, yeah, yeah, this is this is the song that makes me think of what I want to do in this campaign. It was a song called Exist by the band Overwork, O-V-E-R-W-E-R-K. Like, the moment I heard it, I was like, yeah, this perfectly captures the sort of tone I want for this game. I think it'd be pretty cool if you put out the gm playlist for you like the songs and the story they're tied to yeah i have considered doing that actually which i i should i should start thinking of i should start compiling one of those uh for the underground like a lot of times um the way i'll come up with character personalities is like tying them to a particular song and so i have the i sort of have the base idea of what i want that character to be then i'll search around my various uh music libraries like i'll go on spotify and like i'll cue i'll find some artists i think are in that general range and i'll find a specific song within one of those artist libraries and i'll be like okay now from like this matches sort of what i want and from this song i will then craft the finer details of what their personality is like and sort of what their history is with the other characters i have considered like uh, sort of making a record of the various songs I've paired with characters and story events and scenery. Uh, I, should, I should maybe start getting on that. I would like to listen to it myself. What turns you off creatively? Hmm. I get really distracted easily. And like, I know that's not an external thing, but I'm often my own worst enemy. It's very easy for me to procrastinate and say like, oh, I like I have some preparation to do and I really should get on this, but I want to play this video game first or I want to watch this movie first or I want to do this other stuff first. And like I, I can I can do that prep later. So typically like the thing that is most likely to ruin my creativity is my own inability to concentrate on my creativity. <laughs> <laughs> I understand that completely. 
What is your favorite curse word to hear from your players? God damn it. That just lets you know you did something right. <laughs> yeah. What sound or noise do you love? Whenever my players go, Oh. <laughs> like, I, I really love that noise. Either when they piece something together that I had really hoped they'd get, or like when another player has come up with a really off-the-wall plan and they say and they explain it to the other players and they go, oh, crap, that would work really well. Like from either side, whether it's prompted by me or the players themselves, I love it when players make that noise that's like, we just thought of something really good. <laughs> Moving away from the questionnaire for just a minute, do you prefer when your players put pieces together that you intended for them to put together or when they come up with some off-the-wall theory that you didn't even make connections to? It's certainly nice to feel validated. <laughs> like, yes, I set up these clues properly and they're getting it. But I think lately I've come to appreciate spontaneity. Players coming up with theories that you've never intended can like add to your game. Because, like, I know for the Underground, like, some of my players commented about some story event that happened, what they thought was going on, and I listened to that and I was like, huh, I could come up with something really interesting that completely changed how an NPC was interacting with this world and just re completely re recontextualizing everything. And I was like, I may, I should probably go with that. <laughs> This uh something that's going to come up that you can't talk about? Yeah, yeah, I can't talk about it right now because that'd be it would be a gigantic spoiler, like a huge one. Sorry, I can't go into details. I've really started to pre started to appreciate it when my players think of things that I just did never intended. What sound or noise do you hate? Silence, honestly. Like I know it's not a noise, but I hate silence. Because typically it means one of two things. Either the players are stuck and don't know what to do, or they're bored. And either one of those things is a bad sign. So whenever I hear long pauses and long strains of silence, that is a warning sign for me. Do you have a, in case of emergency, silence, break glass method? Yeah, so usually when silence happens, if there is an NPC somewhere in there, I will make them do something. If they are in a unstable environment of some sort, I will start caving the place in. If there is a long moment of silence, I will come up with a complication that they will be forced to address and that is easy for them to like come up with plans to address. And so sort of while that's happening, I can think of ways to solve the problem they were initially having. Sometimes, like, through the process of solving the comp- like, the improv complication, we will end up solving the thing they were stuck on in the first place. And what game system that you haven't GM'd before would you like to attempt? Oh, I would love to try 
the new uh, Star Wars RPGs from Fantasy Flight, like Edge of the Empire and um, uh, the other two games, which I cannot remember the names of. Age of Rebellion. Yeah, Age of Rebellion. Force and Destiny? Yeah, yeah, those three. Because one of my friends, uh, uh, Dan, uh, a.k.a. Weed Lord Vegeta on Twitter. I think everybody knows Weed Lord Vegeta. Yeah, everyone should know Weed Lord Vegeta. But he was going to run a Edge of the Empire game for us. But then, like, he moved to Ireland. And so, like, that made things difficult. And sort of the, the plans fell through. Uh, and it never happened. But, like, I read through that entire rule book. And I was like, I love these rules so much. These are so good. I really, really want to <laughs> try this at some point. Coming from the opposite end, a game that I'd really love to play in, but never want to GM, probably Mage the Awakening. Like, really any World of Darkness system seems like it would be a whole lot of fun to play. But oh good lord, I'd be terrified of GMing a game of World of Darkness. Well, that's where the best part of being a GM comes in. They don't know you're making it up. (laughs) When your game finishes, or a game that you're running finishes, what would you most like to hear your players say to you? Or each other? The funny thing is, is I still have never actually completed a full campaign. Like, they've always kind of dropped off. Actually, no, I I take that back. I have managed to finish one complete game. Um, It was a play-by-post game, actually, about, um, about, like, space monks with fun, like, Avatar-esque powers. One of the things I really liked hearing at the end of that was you know how much they enjoyed playing with that system how much they enjoyed like the cool stuff I let them do because like everything they remembered wasn't necessarily the storyline but the cool stuff they did within that storyline and what about for uh, the underground when you finish up that story if you finish up that story, what would you like to hear? I really like to hear them talk about how much they enjoyed the setting of just the uh, sort of the the city of Prism and like being in this interconnected underground city and like sort of going up to a surface that's like really weird and off-putting and dangerous. I'd like to hear them think fondly about how that world felt. I also hope they would think fondly on the complications I set up for their characters and like the leeway I was able to give their characters to do like sort of off the beaten path stuff and create like really memorable scenes with those characters. And in fact, like I already have a character who has told me ahead of time that he is intending on doing something that, like, I created a special system for this particular game for the underground, like, within Dungeon World, like, a very specific set of mechanics that are meant to be, like, a push-pull of sort of, like, risk-reward, like, giving you a lot of power, but with heavy consequences. And so, like, I have a contingency plan for if someone, like, gets to the end point of that trade-off and i wasn't sure if anyone was going to try and do it and one of my players has said he wants to do that 
letting letting the players do those sorts of things and letting the narrative be molded by them like going to extremes to create like really unique uh narrative events like i i really hope that's one of the things they'll remember is like i sure am glad i was able to do this i'm sure i like i'm really glad that you let me do this do you have a story from when you were a player that is still kind of like the legendary story that people still talk about yeah actually yeah uh, I, I alluded to this a little bit ago there was this moment where um it, it was in the fourth edition game i was playing in as a cleric um when i when i was in college and it was fairly early on and actually like oh wait see i was gonna tell this story but now i actually thought of an even better one that involves my best friend actually and uh yeah i think i'll tell this one instead so it's in, it's in the same it's in the same campaign and my friend had was playing this ranger who didn't talk much because my best friend doesn't really talk much so he tries to play characters that are sort of play into the silent type at one point the ranger got separated from the group we noticed him like passing notes back a couple notes back to the gm and stuff but we figured oh it's the ranger he's doing like my friend tends to play characters who like doing stealthy things so it's like oh he's just up to stuff at some point uh during during the game during like the storyline we were doing the ranger sort of disappeared and like we were tracking down this assassin and we eventually got their trail and we tracked them down lo and behold it was the ranger and we've found out through interrogating the the ranger that the ranger we knew that was part of our party at the beginning had been assassinated by the guy we were trying to track the assassin was a doppelganger and had taken our ranger's place this whole time my best friend and the the dm were keeping mum about this like until this very moment where they finally got to reveal it and like we were all just blown away it's like oh my god that's so clever and it was one of the one of the coolest moments i've ever had in a dnd campaign of like a character death being used for a really cool sort of mystery reveal in real time how slow of a burn was it uh i think it took like i think it took like a month actually that's pretty admirable. Yeah, yeah, it was about a month, I'd say, between like when his character was secretly killed and when the whole thing was revealed. How did the party react to it? Oh, we loved it. Like, like in, I mean, in, like, uh, in oh, our, character. Oh, in, in character, our party just f- fucking destroyed that doppelganger. <laughs> I was uh, kind of hoping they'd be like, you know this guy is pretty fun to hang out with. No, we just we destroyed that doppelganger. A, you're an evil assassin, and B, you killed our friend, so you're dead. But yeah, we we our players re- our characters reacted with a vengeance. Well, that's a pretty good story to wrap up on. <laughs> Where can people listen to you, GM? 
Uh, yeah, so you can listen to me GM on Roll for Your Lives um, over at www.viking-rocketship.com. It's an actual play podcast. Uh, for at least the first part of it, I tended to trade off being a GM and a player with uh, other people. I believe I did the first campaign. The idea is that Roll for Your Lives typically doesn't have long campaigns. Though I, I've sort of made an exception with The Underground because I had this really specific idea that was actually inspired by a friend's suggestion that I really want to do. I was like, oh man, that's really good. So that one's going to be long running compared to the other stuff I've done, but I'm hoping it doesn't take too long. I mean, we're at the fifth session now, I think. I'm not intending for it to take a whole lot longer than like 10 to 15 sessions. Like I'm, I'm hoping that by the our fifteenth recording, we will be very close to the end, if not at the end. Check out my GMing over there. Uh, see me struggle through systems I've never used before, just trying them out. I'm pretty proud of the stuff of the stuff we've been doing with that podcast. Um, and it really helps me that like I'm I'm kind of blessed. I'm a little bit privileged as a GM because I have exceptionally good players. They're all very good role players, and that helps a lot. Like, if, if you have a really good set of players, then that's, like, a lot of the work done for you already. I'd like to thank this week's guest, Dustin, for joining us. I've been your host, Moon Rules, and remember, if you can't beat them, fudge the dice rolls. <laughs> <laughs>